cover all of them today. We're going to do half today, half next week. And that's for an important reason uh, that we'll get into over the course of the next couple of weeks. Um, I do want to say just by note, first of all, I think um, one of the reasons that I am so grateful for the confession is because of the great care that it takes in the doctrine of the church. If there's anything, uh, and I think there's a number of things, but if there's anything that evangelical Christians broadly, generally, I'm sweeping with a broad brush, so, uh, you know, there's always exceptions, but generally, I think evangelicals can tend to be uh, a little ignorant when it comes to the doctrine of the church. It's a, it's a muscle, spiritually speaking, that's somewhat atrophied for a lot of Christians. And so we just kind of assume that a church is anywhere that Christians get together to do Christian-y things and that whatever that looks like is really more dependent upon maybe cultural norms than it might be on things that are actually prescribed in Scripture. And so one of the things that the confession aims to do is to bind Christians to what the Scripture teaches concerning the doctrine of the church. And in that way, uh, the doctrine of the church, beginning in chapter 26, going all the way through chapter 30 on the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, is a subset of a larger section. It's bringing to conclusion a larger section, beginning back in chapter 21, on Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. That there are certain things that Christ, according to his mind, his word, has bound us to as believers, not only in our own individual lives, but in our public and private worship, in the organization of our life together in churches, and we are obligated to those things that Christ as Lord binds us to. However, God alone uh, is Lord of the conscience, which means that whatever we are not bound to are things in which we are free. And so even in the doctrine of the church, what it's aiming to do is locate itself within the larger discussion of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. Where do the scriptures bind us as Christians as we gather together in these, in these visible societies called churches? And in what ways are we free? In what ways do we enjoy liberty? And so it's important to note from the outset where the doctrine of the church is located in the confession really within this larger section on Christian liberty. Now, you're going to notice that, that, that what we're discussing over the course of the next couple of weeks is going to be uh, a Baptist conviction on what the Scriptures teach concerning, uh, concerning the doctrine of the church. So this is going to be really important uh, because this is where we need to do, I think, some careful theological triage. You know, triage is when you come into the hospital or come into the doctor and there's all kinds of things wrong with you and, and they're trying to figure out how to best treat you. In order to do that, they need to prioritize what treatments need to come before other treatments. And the same, we do the same thing with, uh, with theology. Albert Moeller, president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, as far as I know, coined the image of theological triage that not all doctrines are created equal. And so we would consider, for instance, the doctrine of the church to be largely a secondary doctrine. And when I say a secondary doctrine, I mean not primary as it concerns God and the gospel explicitly, those things which are necessary to believe in salvation, and yet it is connected to the gospel. Um, and so though it may be a secondary doctrine in itself, 
it is a primary doctrine when it comes to how we church together, things that are necessary for organizing our life together in the pursuit of holiness as Christ's disciples in these small societies called churches. And so one way, as I said, that we might want to do theological triage is recognize that secondary doctrines are not unimportant doctrines. We need lots of different gears, so to speak. We can't think only in terms of saving doctrines, those are the important ones, and non-saving secondary doctrines, those are the unimportant ones, and we can just agree to disagree and whatever on those. There is, uh, there's, a, there's a range of importance to all of them. I've, I've shared with you before, uh, I think a better way to think about maybe uh, theology, because all of God's word is inspired by God, the doctrines in it, therefore, because God is a God of order, uh, are also inspired by God and by necessity are logically related to one another. And as such, they're not independent, you know, marbles in a bag to be added and taken away without affecting the others. It's more like an organic body of, of theology, an organic body of, of divinity or doctrine. And when I say that, uh, what I'm saying is that every body part's important, but some body parts are, are more important than others. And so you might come up, Alex Stem comes up, takes a knife, butchers my big toe off. I'm probably going to live, but I may be somewhat hobbled. It's not the most important. It's still important. I might be hobbled, but generally speaking, I'm still functioning okay. Okay, so we might consider that various aspects related to eschatological views and other things might be tertiary doctrines. But also, you might have, if Alex comes up with a machete and he chops off my leg at the hip, uh, then if I don't bleed out, I may survive, but I'm going to be more than hobbled. I'm going to be severely hindered such that my progress, my ability to do what my body has been created to do is going to be severely hindered. Now, doesn't mean that I can't still live. There's still life in me without a leg. Uh, but if you take out my heart or my head, if Alex comes up and chops my head right off of my shoulders, uh, then I'm going to be dead on the spot. And doctrines are kind of like that. The doctrines related to God and the gospel, its blessings and its benefits, are all the heart and the head of a body of divinity. You lose that, the whole body goes dead. But there's also secondary doctrines that are like arms and legs where, sure, you can still be a Christian if you don't have one, but you're going to be severely hindered in its loss. And we might consider the doctrine of the church in that regard. And so we need to think carefully. Just because it's not a primary heart and head doctrine, a life or death doctrine, does not mean that it's not a really, really, really important doctrine for the sake of our own health and progress. And so that's where we want to locate this. It's a secondary doctrine, not necessarily to be agreed upon in whole to be saved. It's not a common confession like the gospel, but it's a secondary doctrine that becomes primary for the sake of organizing our life together according to the scriptures. That's a whole lot of introduction on the doctrine of the church. We're going to dive in. Uh, and here's what you're going to see if you have your handouts. If you don't, you can grab one up here at the table. The handout looks something like this. We're going to start with the universal church. We're going to start big, and then we're going to go small. You have the universal church beginning in paragraph one, and then you're going to have that universal, invisible church in paragraphs 
2, 3, and 4 become visible, where do we see God's people in all places at all times? And then from there, that visible church is going to be made local. It's going to be localized, specifically in local bodies. Now, when we pick up next week in chapter 8 and following, we're going to see that that progression continue. Local churches are then going to be made organized according to the mind of Christ, and we'll consider officers and, and various other things. But really what we're, to, what we're thinking about today, according to the first seven uh, paragraphs, is the nature of the church. Not just the nature of the church broadly, all of God's people in all places at all times, but those visible communities of God's people that we see uh, all over the world, including our own. Okay? Let me pray for us, and then we'll dive right into paragraph one on the universal church. Father, I pray that you would bless our time together. No doubt there's more that your word is going to say than I can say over the course of the next 45 or so minutes. And so I pray that uh, you would use what we do talk about to give us clarity concerning the, the nature and the beauty and the goodness of your church that we'd be able to reflect on your purposes for us and of how you manifest your glory and your grace in our lives. Would you be kind to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to notice, first of all, chapter 1, we're going to consider the church's invisible character. First of all, it's invisible character. This is what it says. The Catholic, that is universal church, may be called invisible with respect to the internal work of the Spirit. Now let's stop right there. Some of you perhaps may be thrown off by that word Catholic. And I want you to notice, first of all, it's a lowercase c. It's just following, for instance, what the Apostles' uh, Creed would say. We believe in one holy Catholic, uh, one Holy Catholic Apostolic Church. What is meant by Catholic? Well, it, it, it clarifies it for us here. That is universal. That word Catholic was co-opted by the Roman Church in such a way that it confuses some of us today about what it means. But the Roman Church doesn't have a monopoly on the word. What Christians through the centuries have meant is simply universal. That Christ's people, all those who have been brought by God's grace to repent and believe in the gospel... That is the church Catholic, the universal church. And that church, it says here, may be called invisible. Why? Well, specifically with respect to the internal work of the Spirit and the truth of grace. We're talking about the Catholic or the invisible character of the church. In other words, it's not visible and institutional. That's what the Roman church claims. And so when they claim themselves to be the Catholic church, they're saying that the church universally is made visible within the institution of the Catholic church. Protestants, from the very beginning, disagreed. You realize the Protestant Reformation was not just a, uh, a reformation on the gospel. It was a reformation on ecclesiology, on how we understand and define the nature of the church. And one of those lines in the sand was that the church is not ultimately the universal church, is not ultimately institutional and visible. It is ultimately invisible and spiritual. It's inward. And that's what we see here. 
the internal work of the Spirit, and the truth of grace. And yet it does have a defined membership, though we may not be able to know and see all those who have been brought to repent and believe in Christ through the ages. Its membership is nonetheless defined. Look at the next line. It consists of the full number. Christ loses, not one. Of the elect who have been, are, or will be gathered into one under Christ her head. Now that last phrase is really important because it points thirdly to our spiritual union with Christ. That all those from the very first revelation of the gospel in Genesis 3 who have been brought to repent and believe in Christ through that revelation. You see a whole list of names in Hebrews 11 for instance. Have all been united to Christ by faith and as such that whole universal church Every believer in every place for all time, regenerated by the Spirit, have been united to Christ and are as such the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, and the fullness of Christ. That's what it says here, that the church is the spouse, the body, and the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, I want to consider a handful of scriptures as we, as we think about this. For some, it may be Quite an alien doctrine, but consider, for instance, what Paul writes in his letter to the Galatians. You can turn there with me, Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1, in the introduction of his letter, notice that Paul is writing this, it's a, it's a cyclical letter, to the churches of Galatia, plural. It's a letter that is meant to make its way around to various congregations within the broader region or area of Galatia. But then notice he's writing them specifically about their fidelity to the gospel in verses 6 through 9. And the gospel that he delivered to them, he says in verse 11, came from nobody else but Jesus. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel was preached by me as not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now here's one important implication. That if the Lord Jesus Christ gave me this gospel, and this is the gospel that saints all through Galatia and elsewhere have believed, then all those who have believed in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ belong to him. Which is why he says next in verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted, singular, the church of God. Notice, Paul didn't persecute the Galatian churches. The gospel had not yet fully gone out throughout the Roman Empire. Where was Paul when he was, when he was persecuting and ravaging the church? He was in Jerusalem, wasn't he? And around Jerusalem. And so here he's referring to the church more broadly. I was a persecutor not just merely of a handful of saints that I had in prison, beaten, and killed... But in doing that, I was a persecutor of Christ's body. Remember what Jesus says when he confronts Paul on the, uh, on the road to Damascus? What does he say? He says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Speaking about his church. All those who have been united to Christ for all time are his church, such that for, for Paul... 
to ravage a handful of saints in Jerusalem is for Paul to, to go after Christ and all of his beloved bride. Consider an even more compelling passage in the book of Hebrews. There's so many that we could go to, but these are just a handful to hang our hats on. Hebrews chapter 12. Talking about the superiority of the new covenant to the old covenant. And connected to each one of those covenants is a people that is the old covenant versus the covenant of grace. And this is what we see in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. Now, we're not talking about a literal mountain. We're talking about the dwelling place of God. To the city of the living God. Not a physical city. What's he talking about? No, it's a heavenly, a spiritual, an invisible city. The heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. Verse 23. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. You can't see them, but they are in Christ. You say, well, what might be some examples, Paul, of some of those names that have been enrolled in heaven? We'll consider this back in chapter 11. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might again rise to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not yet receive what was promise. They had the gospel in mystery form since God had provided something better for us. Notice the them and the us, all partakers together. And what does Paul call them at the beginning of Hebrews 12? Therefore, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Who are those witnesses? If they're not, Hebrews 12 verse 23, the assembly, the church of the firstborn, who are enrolled in heaven. Beautiful. That's an amazing statement. That all those whom God has predestined for life and promised to his son in the covenant of redemption, that covenant in which the son agreed to willingly offer his life as a payment, to shed his blood, to secure the redemption of all those whom the father uh, promised to give him. All of those from the very first revelation of the gospel in Genesis 3 post-fall, and all those who have come to believe in Christ through that, through that progressive revelation, all those saints for all time and all of redemptive history have been united to Christ. He is their head, and they are his church. This is a really remarkable statement for instance, I was taught for some years by godly men who I love and appreciate that the church was a parenthesis and that Israel was God's plan. But when you consider it in this light, what you discover is that the church has always been God's plan. The church was before Israel. The church was within Israel, hidden as a mystery. The church has uh, since been fully revealed in Christ after Israel and will be standing alone at the end of history when Christ returns. 
Now, theocratic Israel under the Old Covenant was the parentheses. The church has always been plan A from Genesis 3 onwards, and that's what we would consider to be the universal church. They are our brothers and sisters. They are those with whom we are going to enjoy the glory of God in the face of Christ as we see him face to face for eternity. They're the ones with whom we are going to rule the new creation together with Christ. I wonder what those conversations are going to be like. All united and circled around Christ, rejoicing and singing as we see the angels and, and the elders doing in Revelation. Amazing, isn't it? What an amazing thought, the universal church, that we would be part of that. That we have been swept up in such a grand work of redemption through the ages. And these are God's people, the church. The full number of the elect who have been, are now, or will be between now and Christ's return, gathered into one, invisibly, spiritually, under Christ, her head. That's the universal church. But it's not just merely spiritual. All saints in all times and all places, that is universal, that is spiritual and inward, it's invisible. And yet at the same time, it's not merely spiritual, it's not merely invisible, it is also made visible in the lives of saints that are living on earth at any given moment. And that's what we see in paragraph two. We're going to see three things in this paragraph, or really in paragraphs two, three, and four, the universal church made visible. We're going to see three things in these three paragraphs. We're going to see, first of all, in paragraph two, visible saints. We're going to see in paragraph three, true churches. And then we're going to see in paragraph four, one head, one head. Follow along with me, beginning in paragraph 2, or chapter 2, or rather paragraph 2, sorry about that. Visible saints. The confession reads, All people throughout the world who profess the faith of the gospel in obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel are and may be called visible saints. As long as they do not destroy their own profession of faith by any foundational errors or unholy living. All local or particular congregations ought to be made up of these. Who are the these referring to? Those who profess the faith of the gospel and demonstrate obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel. Consequently, to the gospel. Following belief in the gospel. That's what they're saying. Three things become evident in this short little paragraph. We're going to see identification, disqualification, and congregation. You're not a Baptist if you don't have at least a little bit of, of wordplay. Notice identification. All people throughout the world who do profess the faith of the gospel and obedience to Christ. Look at this. I love this passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We already established the fact of the universal church. But look at what Paul writes. He's called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. And he gives reference to his brother Sosthenes. But in, in verse 2 he says, To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those 
sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. I want you to notice a handful of things. That a church, a visible church, is first of all, in verse 2, it is local. Do you see it there? To the church of God that is in Corinth. It's localized. But is that the sum total of God's people in all of the earth? No, it's not. But notice who comprises it. To the church of God that is local here in Corinth, the members of this church are those who, Paul says, are sanctified in Christ Jesus, that they have been set apart by his blood for holy use by God in the world. They've been saved by his grace called to be saints. But notice what it says. The kingdom of Christ doesn't end at the boundaries of the local church in Corinth. They were called to be saints together with those who in every place profess the exact same gospel that they believe, who call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not only your Lord, Paul says, he's their Lord too. It's not just your gospel, it's Christ's gospel, and they've come to believe it too, which means that you are called with them, and you are all one body. You are part of the bride of Christ, part of the body of Christ. So this is an important statement to make. Covenant Baptist Church is not the bride of Christ. Covenant Baptist Church is part of the Bride of Christ, manifesting the same qualities as the Bride of Christ in all ages, as those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints. We are, in one sense, visibly the body of Christ, but we're not the body of Christ. We are part of the body of Christ. The body of Christ, in a much greater sense, are all of those saints who have been united to Christ through the ages. That there is a sense in which Covenant Baptist Church manifests the fullness of Christ's glory through His Spirit as the fullness of deity dwells in Him bodily and we've been united to Him. But we don't exhaust the glory of God in our community. We are but a part of the fullness of Christ manifested in His people for all time and through all ages. Do you see what Paul's doing here? There is a visibility... And there's also a Catholicity, lowercase c, Catholicity, that you should be not only for your church, because remember the Corinthians, as we've been studying through it, they think they're pretty hot stuff. Can there be a better church than us, they think? And Paul, from the very beginning, is saying, listen, you were called by grace, just like every other church in every other place, and you share in all of the blessings and the benefits of Jesus Christ with them. You are all together co-heirs with Christ. That's a remarkable statement, I think. And so the saints are visible. But there are some ways in which those visible saints, those who are sanctified in Christ, called to be together, invisible churches, those who have called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, can be disqualified as visible saints. And the confession identifies at least two ways. One way might be doctrinal, and the other way might be moral. Look at what it says. 
that these may be called visible saints as long as they do not destroy their own profession by any foundational errors or unholy living. Turn to 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy chapter 4. And I want you, as you turn there, to consider that he doesn't just say error. He doesn't say, listen, they may be called visible saints as long as they get the doctrine of the millennium right. Is that what he's saying? No. They may be called visible saints as long as they get the doctrine of church and baptism right. Is that what he's saying? Well, no. What is he saying? The confession says by their own, by foundational errors. What would we consider those to be foundational errors? It would be those errors that we would consider to be fundamental to God and the gospel, such that to deny them is to deny the one true God and the, and the only means of salvation. He's made available to sinners through the man Christ Jesus. There's only one mediator between God and man, such that to deny him is to deny the very means of salvation provided by the God you deny. And so those are foundational errors that put salvation at risk. 1 Timothy 4.1, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith. Now the faith there is not talking about subjective faith, not faith that we put in an object outside of us. It's talking about an objective body of truth, the faith once and for all delivered to the saints. He says, from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared and so on and so forth. Notice this demonic teaching is that these demons are behind these teachings that are ultimately denying the foundational aspects of the faith that are necessary for true belief unto salvation. Those things which God has revealed in his word and in his son. And so how can one who may be called a visible saint disqualify themselves from being called as much in this life that they would deny God in the gospel? But that's not the only way. It also might be due to moral failures, not just doctrinal failures. Consider 1 Corinthians 5.1. We just saw this a couple of months ago. So I've been preaching through 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now, here it's not talking just unholy living. It's not talking about uh, being a sinner. You can go back to previous chapters and remember in the, in the, in the, in the chapter on sanctification that we are sinners still, though we're not slaves to sin. You remember, for instance, in, in the chapter on free will, that while we are in a state of grace, that grace has not yet been consummated in the new creation, which means that we are still mixed with our own indwelling sin. That's not what it's talking about here. It's talking about the kind of high-handed, gospel-denying sin that refuses to call Christ Lord. It says, I love my sin more than I love my Savior. It not only confuses the gospel, but it disqualifies your very profession. There's no credibility to it. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 11, Now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. In other words, he was a member of the church. He was called a visible saint. But he's saying, now I'm telling you not to associate with him as a visible saint 
if he's guilty of sexual immorality or greed or idolater, reviler, drunkard, swindler, not even to eat at the Lord's Supper, I would take it, with such a one. That those who would give themselves to a kind of immoral life. Here we have in this general doctrine of the church the foundations for excommunication. Those who might once be considered visible saints, living in such a way in unrepentant sin that a credible profession can no longer be declared by Christ's churches over this person. We have just no confidence that you're what you say you are. And so you can disqualify, at least visibly. God knows the hearts of all people, but insofar as we're able to judge according to the world, may be disqualified by unholy living. And all of these saints, chapter 2 says, who profess the gospel and are walking by his grace and obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel, beginning with baptism, are to gather into local congregations. In fact, it goes so far as to say these local congregations ought only to be made up of these members. And so notice that the confession is distinguishing between the nature of the old covenant Implicitly, the nature of the old covenant to Israel with, with those covenant members and their children and of the new covenant of those who are not part of the households of those under the old covenant, but those who are part of the household of God in Christ. They are the heirs of Abraham, Abraham's sons. Those who profess the faith of the gospel and have obedience to God through Christ in keeping with the gospel. They're the ones to be brought into local congregations, visible saints. But secondly, there's also true churches, handful of things that we need to see here. We're going to see that every local church, every visible church is going to be imperfect. Every visible church over the course of its life may be impermanent, but every true church comprised of every saint, all those who have been brought by God's grace to believe, repent and believe in the gospel, will make it to the end. So in other words, though, particular local churches are imperfect and may fail on this side of Christ's return, apostatize or otherwise, Christ's church, universally speaking, cannot fail. It will succeed and Christ will lose not one. Look at the, look at the chapter. The purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Covenant Baptist Church is not a perfect church. Now, if you've been a member here for any amount of time, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. It means that there may be those who are Christians in name only, and only in a matter of time will their unregeneracy in this life or perhaps at the judgment will be found out. That there may be members in our church that are not in fact saved. Or it may be that in a whole host of matters, we might have doctrinal error. We might stand before Christ one day and go, man, thought we nailed that one, but we were way off. And nevertheless, we aim to bind our consciences to Scripture to the best of our ability on this side through the Spirit as we try to confess those things believed and taught by the church through the ages. It's one of the reasons why a confession of faith is so helpful. Well, so first of all, 
No church is perfect. We see that here in 1 Corinthians 5. If you were to consider Christ's preaching to the churches in Revelation, Revelation 2 and 3, in almost every example you find, these are true churches bought by the blood of Christ who are yet very much imperfect churches. And such is every church everywhere. But secondly, some churches are more than merely imperfect. It says some have degenerated so much that they have ceased to be churches of Christ and have instead become synagogues of Satan. You see that reference there, Revelation 18.2 is talking about the spirit of Babylon inhabiting the spirit of God's people seeking to consume the church. Hop over to your right if you're still in 1 Corinthians 5 to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thess 2, beginning in verse 11. Let's go back up to 9. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but have pleasure in unrighteousness. Now he's talking about those in the church who are departing from the gospel. And so there is some churches that so deny the gospel and depart from God that though they may assemble visibly, they are not true churches. We have churches like that in our own city who have denied God and the gospel, who have denied the authority of God's word, who have called sin, uh, have called unrighteousness righteousness, and have called sin holiness. And it may very well be that those churches have degenerated. It's part of the reason why in our pastoral prayers we pray not only for the health of true churches that we would become more like Christ, but we also pray for those churches who have abandoned the gospel, degenerated churches, that God would be kind to remove from their pulpits and leadership those leaders that are leading them astray with a false gospel and replace them instead with those who would have fidelity to the word of God. It's only right that we would pray such imprecatory prayers for the judgments of those who would aim to devour Christ's sheep, even in our own city. But even though no church is perfect, and even though some visible local churches will degenerate such that they can no longer be counted as true churches, the church of God, the body of Christ, his beloved bride, that is a certainty. Christ will lose not one, and all those whom he has saved by his grace, who have been effectually called by God to believe in the gospel, will endure to the end. Not just individually, but his whole church. No part of his church will be lacking in the day of Christ's return. He's not going to look around and go, where's so-and-so? Man, I really thought they were going to make it. Every one is going to make it home who have believed upon Christ for salvation. Though their faith, as we've seen earlier in the confession, may at times be weak and feeble in this life, yet the Spirit of God who indwells them will revive it once again through repentance and faith, and they will endure to the end. Christ will make sure of it. And so true churches are those that manifest, make visible the reality of Christ's universal church, those who have been redeemed by him, 
and will make it to the end. Finally, in chapter 4, we see that there's one head. We see, first of all, Christ is our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we see his appointment. The Lord Jesus Christ is the head of the church. By the Father's appointment, he is the head of the church. Let's just put our eyes on some important passages. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. Beginning in verse, well, I tell you what, let's go all the way. Boy, you can go all. <laughs> let's try not to go back up to verse 3. Let's just start at 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Get this, verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and he gave him, that is God, gave him Christ as head over all things to the church. He's ours and we are his body. We are the fullness of him who fills all in all. That he's been given all authority and dominion and power and he has been given to us, and we are his. Isn't that an amazing truth? We are so bound up with Christ that by his power and authority and dominion, the church cannot fail. It's impossible. He is our head, and he alone is our head, such that there's no other mediator but him. But secondly, notice, as we've already seen his power, that all authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern the church. It's interesting that here the confession uses as a proof text Matthew 28, 18 to 20. What does the Lord Jesus Christ say when he commissions his apostles to preach the gospel and establish churches? He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has all authority, and by that authority has commissioned his people to go make disciples through the preaching of the gospel among all nations. But you notice also, what are we supposed to do as, as, the, as some are brought to repent and believe in the gospel? They are to be baptized in the name of Christ, and they are taught to obey all that Christ has commanded. You say, well, where do I learn what that means? You say, well, you learn that in the rest of the New Testament and the epistles, and all of those need to be read with local church lenses. That to preach the gospel and have people saved and baptize them is to baptize them into the church, and in the context of a church, they would obey all that Christ has commanded. And so by the authority of Christ and the preaching of the gospel and the formation of churches among those whom he saves and effectually calls by his gospel, all power is his. He alone 
is the mediator. Salvation is through no one else. But I want you to notice this is one controversial aspect of the confession. I don't think it's hard to understand or controversial really at all. Once we understand it, it'll make a lot of sense. But we've seen his appointment, we've seen his power, but now consider thirdly, his imposter. The Pope of Roman Catholicism cannot in any sense be the head of the church. Rather, he is the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness and the son of destruction who exalts himself in the church against Christ and all that is called God. The Lord will destroy him with the brightness of his coming. Now, obviously, there's some senses in which this is historically situated. There's other senses in which, because of what the scriptures teach and because of what we would naturally affirm from earlier parts of the confession, that this is a necessary implication. Now, when it comes, for instance, to subscribing to the confession, there may be, I think, room for members, even elders, to take exception with some of the language they might say. Well, I don't know if I really like, uh, I don't know if I really like um, the word the in front of antichrist. An antichrist, can we say that? Well, I think that would be perfectly fine. Really, this is the spirit. Go to 2 Thessalonians again, chapter 2. And this is referring to the man of lawlessness. They're applying this to him because this is the spirit in which he has come over the church of Christ. Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Give me just a second. I went to 2 Corinthians. Second Thess 2, beginning in, <clears throat> beginning in verse 2. Now concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now, so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he's out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You get the idea. And they're saying that the characteristics of this man of lawlessness we find in the quote-unquote head of the church, the appointed vicar of Christ on earth. You say, well, how do they arrive at that conclusion? Well, it's an implication, I think, of some more foundational doctrines, not only through the denial of the gospel, but ultimately in the setting up of himself, in the setting up of himself as a mediator between God and men. And so you notice there's some cross-references in your confession. 
Let's see if we can't put together some more foundational aspects. Chapter 8, verse 9. I'm not going to try to prove these. I've already done that in previous recordings. You can go back and listen to those on your own time. I'm just going to state them as is. Chapter 8. Paragraph 9. This office of mediator between God and humanity is appropriate for Christ alone, who is the prophet, priest, and king from the church of God. This office may not be transferred from him to anyone else, either in whole or in part, such that for any man, is what it's saying, to assume to himself even in part a mediatorial role, a headship over the church that belongs to Christ alone, is to set himself up as anti-Christ. Look also at chapter 21, verse 2, or paragraph 2. Chapter 21, paragraph 2. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. In other words, his word alone binds us, not the word of any man ex cathedra from the chair. Not any kind of holy tradition or anything else. God alone is the Lord of conscience. No one else has authority to bind it. And he has left it free from human doctrines and commandments that are in any way contrary to his word or not contained in it. And so when the Pope ex cathedra assumes to not only speak for God, but speak the very words of God with the same authority of God, then he is setting himself up as a Lord of the conscience. So believing such doctrines or obeying such commands out of conscience is a betrayal of true liberty of conscience. It destroys liberty. It requires implicit faith, take my word for it, or absolute and blind obedience. It destroys liberty of conscience and reason as well. Go to the next chapter, paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Since the fall, worship is not to be given without a mediator, nor through any mediation other than Christ alone. Our access to God comes through Christ alone, such that any man who would assume to make himself head over the church, who would assume to operate in any mediatorial role whatsoever, not only draws people away from the true knowledge of Christ, but he sets himself up as anti-Christ. Now, can that happen in a lot of different ways? Are there lots of anti-Christs? Well, the Apostle John says it in a plural sense, doesn't he? Elsewhere in the New Testament. Are there ways in which so-called apostles set themselves up in their prosperity churches? and act as mediators, so to speak, between their congregations and God, receiving words from God to give to their congregations and speaking to their congregations on behalf of God, such that their blessings come through him. Is there a sense in which that is anti-Christ? You better believe it. But here's the key, and I think James Renahan is really, really helpful in helping us get some categories here. That the statement about the Pope is not ultimately a statement about eschatology, which is frequently how it's viewed. In other words, you and I have read enough left behind books to think when they're talking about the Pope, is it talking about Nikolai Carpathia 
right? Is that what we're talking about? Is it, are we thinking about it in terms of a dispensational eschatological framework? No, Dr. Renahan says. He says that's not the best way to look at it. Rather, it's a matter of ecclesiology, intended as a contrast with the sovereign lordship granted to Christ. Remember the context of the whole chapter. Christ is head over his church. He has all power and all authority to execute, organize his churches. It's a contrast with the sovereign lordship granted to Christ. To create a visible head on earth as a replacement for the true invisible head who is enthroned above is blasphemous. That's what the reformers believed. And I think this is a difficult pill for many of us to swallow because of the last 50 to 70 years of evangelical ecumenism where we want so badly to find common ground with our Roman Catholic friends or Greek Orthodox friends. And what we've done is we've drifted into the same lie that Rome itself is selling, and that is, is that unity is more importantly visible and institutional than it is invisible, inward, and spiritual. We read things like John 17... Or we read Jesus' high priestly prayer that he prays that the world would know that we are one and we go, well, unity must then be above everything. But friends, listen, unity is nothing if not doctrinal. Unity at the expense of doctrine is not unity. If you get a whole group of people together in a room and they all call themselves Christians, but they can't agree on what, who Christ is or what a Christian is or what the gospel is, it doesn't matter how united they think they are. They are not united in Christ. Do you understand what we're saying? This was the hill that the, that the reformers were willing to die on. It's why it's in the confession, and I think for some of us, this is one of those atrophied muscles as evangelical Christians, out of a good instinct to be charitable and ecumenical, is to recognize that wherever we cross lines in terms of God and the gospel, where anybody might set themselves up as, even in part, a mediator over Christ, between God and Christ's church, then that man sets himself up as antichrist, and that church is false. And so the confession makes no ifs, ands, or buts about it, and I believe it's scripturally warranted. Can we quibble over the definite article? I think we certainly can. Are there more than one antichrist? There are all kinds of people that oppose Christ and set, himself, set themselves up as little Christs in the place of him. That's granted. But the important thing to recognize here is that this confusing aspect of the Pope is specifically related to ecclesiology. Who is the head of the church? Christ alone is. Full stop. That's, what the, that's ultimately what the confession is affirming. Well, from there it moves on in chapters 5, 6, and 7. The visible church is now being made local. We're going to see, first of all, in chapter 5 that it's called by Christ's power. Secondly, we're going to see that it is, uh, that the called, or rather it's called by cross power. Uh, that's going to be chapter 5. Oh, hold on, just saying, got my pages out of order. 
In chapter 6, we're going to see it's instituted by Christ's power. And in chapter 7, we're going to see that it's ordered by Christ's power. Where do we get that? Notice back up in, in chapter or in paragraph 4. All authority is conferred on him in a supreme and sovereign manner to call, institute, order, and govern. Those four words structure the rest of the chapter. Christ's power manifested in the calling of his saints, the instituting of his churches, the ordering of their life together, and of their governance through their officers. And we're going to see the beginning of those now. First in chapter 5, all authority is conferred on Christ in a supreme and sovereign manner to call. We're called by Christ's power. And we're going to see two things, that Christ, first of all, is going to call the elect, and then we're going to see that the called form churches. Notice the first half of the paragraph. In exercising the authority entrusted to him, the Lord Jesus, through the ministry of the word, by his spirit, calls to himself out of the world those who are given to him by the Father. They are called so that they will live before him in all the ways of obedience that he prescribes for them in his word. And so we notice a few things. How does Christ call the elect? I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time here because I've already taught on effectual calling, but he calls through ordinary means, through his word, by the power of his spirit, and specifically for obedience. That when we go through all the nations making disciples, what are we to teach them to do? to obey all that Christ has commanded. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 10 that we've been, we've been saved by grace through faith, right? It's not our own doing, but what have we been saved for? We're God's masterpiece, saved for what? Good works. And as Ryan so helpfully taught a number of weeks ago, those good works are no less defined by God and are performed by us in obedience to the word of God. You say, well, I thought we were saved for the glory of God. Well, here's how that nebulous term gets shoe leather on it. What does it look like to glorify God on earth? It looks like believing and obeying his word. Trusting him over all of the various lies and deceptions of Satan and demons in the world. Proving him to be supremely valuable. Supremely trustworthy. And our only hope in life and death. And so Christ calls the elect. And those elect, when they're called, they form churches and join churches. Those who are called, well, he commands to live together in local societies or churches for their mutual edification and the fitting conduct of public worship that he requires of them while they're in the world. Well, what is the public worship that we're talking about? You can see the note there, chapter 22, verses 5 and 6. We looked at that a number of weeks ago. I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you haven't already. But it's really just to say that the, that the worship of, of every local church is regulated by God's word alone. God is not only interested that he's worshipped, but he's interested how he's worshipped. And in that regard, he has told us what to do. He's not left it up to our own creativity. He's not left it up to our own imaginations, such that every element of worship whereby we would aim to know and joy and come near to God have been instituted by him and center on Christ alone. Such that anything outside of that, not authorized by God's word, brought into the public worship of the church would be sin. It would be to add to God's word and to bind men's consciences. 
Remember, this is all part of a larger section of Christian liberty and liberty of conscience. And so you can go back and cross-reference, for instance, chapter 22, 5 and 6. I spent some great time several weeks ago showing scripturally where that comes from, and so you can revisit that. But those come into churches, and it's for mutual edification, that is to build up the church, and for fitting conduct of public worship. What ultimately is the mission of the church in the world? The mission of the church of the world is the evangelization of the nations and the edification of the church for the glory of God. It's to see all those who are among God's elect be effectually called by the right preaching of the gospel, be baptized into visible churches, and have those churches aim by God's grace to so obey him in the world that they would adorn the gospel of God with their lives. That's the mission of the church in the world at its simplest form. It is edification and evangelization. And here we see exactly that. Moving on into chapter 6, not only is it, are we called by Christ's power, but these local churches are instituted by Christ's power. We're going to see, first of all, a credible membership, and then we're going to see, secondly, a committed membership. It says the members of these churches are saints by calling, visibly displaying and demonstrating in and by their profession and life their obedience to the call of Christ. The key word in that sentence is visibly. God alone indeed knows the hearts of men, but do their lives adorn the doctrine of God? Are they aiming by God's grace always imperfectly to obey what Christ has commanded? Well, wherever you find that, of obedience and keeping with the gospel, you will find a true visible saint. And that's exactly what it says here. They're effectually called, they believe in the gospel, and they're evidently obedient, and those two things go together. How can we know? It's not merely by... By taking someone's word for it, their life in some way, beginning with obedience to Christ in baptism and flowing out from that, give evidence to the credibility of a true confession. But it's not just a credible membership, it's also a committed membership. It says they willingly agree to live together according to Christ's instructions, giving themselves to the Lord and to one another by the will of God with the stated purpose of following the ordinances of the gospel. Notice two things. They're walking together and they're giving themselves or devoting themselves first to the Lord and to one another. What are the two greatest commandments? Love God, love others. Paul builds concentric circles in Galatians chapter 6 around who those others are. Do good to all people beginning with the household of faith. Love the saints. Love the world according to God's word. As he's commanded us to love the world. That we would love God and that we would love others. Don't we see this in Acts chapter 2 verse 41? It's familiar, but it's always worth revisiting because every time I go here, I just think that's what I want to be a part of. Acts chapter 2. Those who received the preaching of the word by Peter believed and were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. That's remarkable, effectually called. 
And, verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the foundation of the church, and the fellowship, the koinonia, the, the community. They participated with fellow saints in the blessings and the benefits of the gospel, specifically through the breaking of the bread and through prayers, through the Lord's Supper and through praying together. So immediately what happens when they believe in the gospel? They're baptized. They're not baptized as an end in itself, but they're baptized into the communion of the saints. They're baptized into a church. And immediately they begin devoting themselves to God's word. Not just learning it, but obeying it by his grace. And of enjoying God and all the blessings and the benefits of the gospel through the communion of the saints. Mark's going to be teaching on that here in a couple of weeks. It's going to be a sweet time. I think for our own sake, in our own day, what we find in these two points, a credible membership and a committed membership, is to push back against two key errors among many Christians today. By insisting on a credible membership, it pushes back against nominalism. It's anti-nominalism, name only. In our own context, nominalism is rampant. Those who say that they're Christian, those who say that I've accepted Christ, those who have maybe even been baptized once upon a time, and yet their lives give no evidence of the indwelling Holy Spirit whatsoever. They love sin, and that is rampant. They neglect Christ, they don't care about the church, but they would still call themselves Christian. A credible profession is anti-nominalism. You can't be a Christian in name only. Over time, by the working of the Spirit in your life, your life has to prove it. Secondly, now let me just say, that's going to look different Christian to Christian. Some are going to, we don't want to be the kind of fruit inspectors that are constantly comparing ourselves to one another. We want to be the kind of fruit inspectors that are always comparing ourselves to God's Word. This is what we're aiming to be. We, if we start looking around at other people, we're going to either get really proud, thinking, look at the progress that I made, or we're going to get really discouraged. Why aren't I making progress like that saint? Listen, progress is always the goal, and the Spirit will always produce it in His own time, in His own ways, through His appointed means over the course of a Christian's life. But secondly, a committed membership is opposed to consumerism. It's anti-consumerism. Just think about how church hopping and using churches is kind of like a buffet of religious goods and services to self-actualize my own spiritual desires. Think about how all of that is utterly contrary to the summary of the scriptures here, that is of giving or devoting themselves not only to God, but to one another. It's to give myself to you, and you give yourself to me, and we give ourselves to one another. You realize this is what our church covenant is aiming to do as it summarizes scriptural truth and the, the promises that we make to one another? 
that we're going to love one another and encourage one another and speak truth to one another and we're going to give generously to one another and we're going to mourn with those who mourn and we're going to weep with those who weep and we're going to rejoice with those who rejoice and we're going to try to raise up our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord and we are going to aim to bring our neighbors and friends and family to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to commit to all of these things. Why? Because we're not consumers. We're joyful proprietors in Christ's visible church for the sake of the evangelization of our city and for the edification of those that belong to Christ to build up the church. That's what every Christian has been called into a church to do. And we've all been gifted in different ways to do that by the Spirit's power. Praise God for that. One body, many parts, where nobody can say I don't belong and nobody can say I have no need of you. God's rigged it differently. You do belong and you do need fellow saints. And so you can't be a consumer. And so paragraph six is especially helpful in that it pushes back against our nominalistic and consumeristic impulses in our own culture. Finally, paragraph seven, that these visible local churches are ordered by Christ's power. And we see two things. We see his power delegated and we see his power delineated. First of all, to every church gathered, and that word gathered is very important, to every church gathered in this way, that is, with the members, that is, who are are its members, what is its mission, what are its responsibilities, all those things that have been described in the previous paragraphs, to every church gathered in this way, conforming to Christ's mind, As declared in his word, because you can't find his mind anywhere else, he has given all power and authority that is in any way necessary to conduct the form of worship and discipline that he has instituted for them to observe. Christ has been given all power. He is invisible in his headship, and he has delegated that power to local congregations when they gather for a handful of purposes to make judgments on true and false gospels, Galatians 1, to make judgments on true and false gospel professors, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and in light of those things, uh, to make judgments on true and false churches, such that if any one of you were to leave and want to join a church that denied the gospel, we would deny that church. Does that make sense? And we have to, to protect you and to protect the the purity of the gospel. Not on secondary issues, but on those who abandon God and the gospel. And so in these ways, Christ has deputized every local congregation. Matthew 18, he says, tell it to the church. The church is the one who speaks. The church is the one who judges. 1 Corinthians 5, when they put the brother out of the church for sexual immorality, it's not the leaders that Paul rebukes. It's the congregation that he rebukes. And it's the congregation that Paul enacts. You're the one that has to speak. And then when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, maybe it's that same brother. That brother is the one who by the common suffrage of the church is brought back into the church, having already been excluded, so that he wouldn't be crushed by sorrow in his repentance. He's restored to fellowship. 
And Christ has given his church's authority over all of those things. It's a deputized authority to speak on earth what is true in heaven concerning true gospels, true gospel professors, and true gospel churches. And every local church has the right to draw lines according to scripture on those things. In fact, we must. And notice, it's not the leaders that do it. It's not the officers. It's not the senior pastor that does it. It is every church gathered. Why gathered? Well, you're going to see that when we get to the Lord's Supper, these two things go hand in hand. When we gather, one of the reasons, prudentially, though Scripture doesn't command it, that we take the Lord's Supper every single week for a handful of reasons. One, because we think uh, it shows us Christ, and that's a good thing, and I don't know why we would ever want enough of a good thing. Some people say, well, you know, if you take the Lord's Supper too often, it's not going to be special, but nobody says that about preaching or singing or praying. And so, if it's a good thing, we love good things, and we want to do it as much as possible. Secondly, we do believe it's a means of grace whereby we feed on Christ by faith, and he strengthens us. We participate with him in a unique way as a body. But thirdly, it's a symbol of this congregation's authority. So when I stand up on your behalf and I fence the table on who can come and who needs, to, who needs to abstain from partaking, what we're doing is exercising as a congregation the discipline of the church. True gospel professors baptized according to a profession of faith, either members of our church or members in good standing of other churches able to come forward and enjoy the Lord's Supper with us. But those who are not Christians or have not been baptized in his name cannot partake. So you realize there's a sense in which the Lord's Supper is, is at, the, at the Lord's table. The church makes judgments. And so in 1 Corinthians 5, when you have this sinning brother and unrepentant sin, and they remove him not even to eat with such a one, it's not to say that, that you never talk to him again. It's that you don't associate with him as a Christian. The goal of all church discipline is restoration. I want to see that brother in 1 Corinthians 5, maybe he's the one in 2 Corinthians 2, that is restored back into the fellowship of the church. Praise God! If we had a saint that was under the discipline of this church, and they were put out from the membership of our church, and they showed back up into the gathering of our church, we'd say, we're so glad you're here. I pray that you would heed God's word, believe it, and obey it. But as you're here, please refrain from taking the Lord's Supper. We cannot eat with you until you're repentant and restored to the church. The Lord's Supper is symbolic of the church's judgments. That's why, for instance, well, I won't keep going on that. You understand what I'm saying? All of these things are connected that's why we can't play fast and loose with the ordinances. They're so important for the shape of the gospel in the church. It's where the church makes declarations on who represents Jesus to the world. But notice that that authority that's delegated to us is not something that we can just make up as we go. We don't come up with it by divine fiat. We don't have the authority to bind anybody to anything God's word does not ultimately speak. No, his power is delineated. He has given them commands and rules to use and carry out that power rightly and properly. Local congregations that carry out Christ's commands and Christ's rules without adding or taking away from them exercise their delegated authority in a godly way to the flourishing of the saints and the protection of the gospel in the world. That's a good thing. Local congregations that add to Christ's commands or take away from them, that add to Christ's rules or take away from them, such that they would wrongly bind other Christians or loose Christians from that which Christ has bound them to, 
That is an abuse of authority. And we'll stand and give an account to Christ for how we've used that authority one day. And so it's a harrowing thing. We cling to God's word and we cannot go further than God's word when we make the judgments that we make. That's why church discipline can't be personal. It can't be punitive. It can't be any of those things. It has to be on the plumb line of scripture, no more, no less. And Christ protects his people that way because he loves us. And he knows that left to ourselves, we're going to make a big hot mess of everything. We already do our best, but Christ's word restrains us. Well, that's the first half of the chapter on the doctrine of the church. 